If you brought a Bible, please turn to our epistle reading, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. This morning, we've come to the climax of this letter, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the very first church that existed on the European continent, this tiny group of Christians living in the city of Philippi. Now, as you're finding the passage, I want to ask you a question. Do you have a role model? Is there someone in your life who you've deliberately looked to and you are imitating them? You're deliberately watching them and imitating them, patterning your life after them, someone who's an example for you, like my son Shelby says, of a real Christian. Because as God tells us here so clearly, picking a role model and imitating them is vitally important for being a Christian. Notice Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. James just read this. Listen to it again. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk or live according to the example you have in us. Now, let's just stop for a minute and recognize an elephant in the room. For some of us, this is off-putting. For some of us, the idea that a person would say, follow me. Let me be a role model for you. Let me be an example to you. Some of us are so suspicious of those in leadership, people with power, institutions. Some of us are so suspicious that we're at a disadvantage when it comes to reading this verse as God's word. Right? There's a baby boomer, hippy-dippy version of this, right? that says, hey, we're gonna, our parents were stupid. We're going to fashion a new way. And then there's a younger version of this that's just deeply cynical. That if a person with power and influence and leadership says, hey, live your life like mine, we're kind of automatically set up to be attuned to the ways that that can be manipulative and coercive. But here, Paul is matter-of-factly holding himself up as an example. And not just himself, other people too. Throughout the letter, he identifies people that are worthy of, of following, of looking to as a role model. He talks about Timothy. We saw this a few weeks ago. And Epaphroditus and, and Yodia and Syntyche and, and Lydia and Clement. And yet... We know these are not perfect people. We'll see next week that Yodia and Syntyche definitely are not perfect, but he's still holding them up. A church has to have role models, Christians that we can identify as living flesh and blood people who are doing a good job at Christianity from whom we can learn. 
In, in my own life, I'm so grateful for Callie West, who meets regularly with my daughter, Shay. I'm grateful that I get to be in a home group with Kinlan and Carolyn Miller, who patterned for me a way of living the Christian life that I need to learn from. When I meet with Bishop Andudu, I, I meet with a man who I want to be like him. I want to imitate his deep commitment to Orthodox Christianity and his deep generosity toward those who do not believe in that. His faith in Jesus, his enormous capacity to love his enemies and work together with people of all religions. Who is your Christian role model? You need one. You need several. Are, are you pridefully cynical so that you get off the hook of having a role model? Who do you meet with regularly that you can obey this command? Walk according to their example. If you're too busy to meet with a role model, then you're too busy. And if you're too cynical to meet with a role model, then you're too cynical. Now, what makes a Christian worthy of imitation? Here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us three qualities that he has that are worthy of being patterned by other people. Three qualities that we can look at and say, oh, that's what I'm going to look for in a role model. I'm going to find somebody who has those and start to meet with them regularly so that I can learn to live my life better. Also, three qualities that you and I need to aim for in our own lives so that we can be examples to other people. The first quality comes up that he's referring to back earlier in the chapter in verses 2 through 11. When Paul writes in verse 17, join in imitating me, he's referring to the things he's been saying to them. And in verses 2 through 11, he's talking about the way he thinks of himself. The way he understands his identity. Paul, we see in verses 2 through 11, grew up with incredible privilege. He was an Israelite. God's chosen people. He was a part of God's chosen people. The Philippians were not Israelites. This was a gift that Paul had. This was a good gift from God. But even that good gift, that incredible privilege, Paul says, next to being a part of Jesus' family, all those privileges, all those accomplishments, all of those gifts, in comparison to knowing Jesus, they're like, in Greek, it's scubula, but probably the best English translation is hot garbage. All that stuff. It's like garbage when I compare it to knowing Jesus. This is verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I have come to regard as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Man, this is so important for us today because identity is really confusing right now. And the reason it's so confusing right now is because our culture has not done well with it. And the fruit of that is coming home to us. And it doesn't do to just wipe everything away by saying, oh, identity politics, it's stupid. We need to go back to a different kind of time. No, 
Yes, there's crazy stuff going on, but there's deep insight going on too. What privileges do you have? What privileges were you born with? What gifts do you have? Like me, are you obviously gifted as a world-class athlete? What are your gifts? Is it sports? Is it making money? Is it beauty? Are you one of the people that is strikingly pretty or strikingly handsome? Do you have power? Do you have artistic gifts? Are you intelligent? Are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? Now, here's the deal. Paul looks at his gifts, and he doesn't have shame over them. He doesn't have shame over his privilege. And he doesn't get mad at other people that have gifts he doesn't have. What does he do with his identity? He takes his gifts, he takes his privilege, and he locates it as of secondary importance so far behind knowing Jesus that even the best gifts in his life, even the coolest privileges in his life, are like garbage compared to knowing Jesus. And that gives Paul an identity that's stable. It turns him into somebody who isn't ravaged by anxiety. It turns him into somebody who doesn't overuse his privilege and gifts to harm people. That's hard to do. It's hard right now to be a white male in America. It's hard to see my way through. It's hard for all of us to discover ourselves. We we are living in a moment that is full of anxiety and self-harm. And here's the good news. There is a way out of the anxiety that comes from not knowing who you are. It's in finding a Christian role model who looks honestly at their gifts and their abilities and their privileges and doesn't feel shame over them, but loves Jesus so much that they're garbage in comparison. We all need a role model for whom knowing Jesus is what matters the most to them in life. It's what gives them an identity more than their victim status and more than their accomplishments. So that's the first quality of a good role model for the Christian, a person who is worthy of imitation. They have practiced the renunciation of privilege for the sake of Jesus. And if we're going to become people who do this in our own lives, we have to get up close to people who are doing that in their life so that we can learn the texture of it, so that we can figure out how to choose that identity. A second quality we should all aspire to and we should find in our role models comes up in the next section of chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. And in this passage, God is teaching us that we need a role model who not only shows us how to find our identity in Christ, but also shows us the way to maturity. That's what verses 12 through 16 are about. They're about the path to maturity. A mature Christian in verses 12 through 16 is someone who knows that they are on the way, but they haven't arrived yet. So they strain. They press forward. They lean into. Notice what God teaches us through Paul here in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, 
but I press on to making it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is the mature way of thinking about yourself. In our baptism, the resurrected Jesus has grabbed hold of us. And so we put real effort into concentrating, not on going to heaven, but on living here and now the life of heaven on earth. True Christian maturity consists in thinking, truly thinking that you are not fully mature yet. And you don't fall back into shame about that. You lean forward into Jesus. And look what it says in verse 15. He says, this is how mature people think. Mature Christians know that they haven't arrived, that they're not perfect. But they don't say, oh, don't, don't pattern after me. I'm not perfect. No, that's part of the maturity. And so they keep pressing on. They keep straining forward like an athlete giving it her all to reach the finish line, leaning toward it. This reminds me, whenever I read this passage, it reminds me of a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where there's this mouse. Does anybody know the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the cool mouse? Reba Cheap, that's right. He's kind of obnoxious, but he's cool. He's the leader of the talking mice of Narnia. He carries a little sword. He's like swashbuckling. Very cool. And at one point um, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, this story, he announces with a lot of bravado, my own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When my coracle sinks, I shall swim east with my forepaws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. You need this kind of role model who is straining toward the resurrection, who being around them, every aspect of their life is being caught up into this incredible drama that the God who created the world is going to heal the world and he's going to return and give us resurrected bodies and we're gonna live our lives here in the new creation with these resurrected bodies. So, so there we have it. There we have two qualities of this kind of role model. Number three. The third quality comes up in verses 17 through 20. Here we see in Paul, a person that is worthy of imitation is not only a person who has learned to discover their identity in Christ, and has learned to receive their gifts and privileges and locate them within a greater love for Jesus. We see that a role model is, is that. A role model is also a person who is straining toward the new creation. A person who's learned that fulfillment in life doesn't come through self-promotion or self-development. But fulfillment in life comes from pressing on for the high calling of God in Christ to live now in ways that are keeping with what we will live when we have our new bodies. But number three, we see a person worthy of imitating has a specific kind of behavior. He acts different than other people. 
other people that Paul describes in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Here's the deal. These people are characterized by self-indulgence. They've developed the habit of saying yes to their desires, to their bodies, whether it's food, alcohol, sex. He's referring to all of this. Porn is addictive. Sex is addictive. Alcohol is addictive. Exercise is addictive. Overindulging our appetites, our desires, our bodies, this can lead us to prison. And in our gospel passage, Jesus said that to follow him, we have to deny ourselves. And notice in Philippians, these people, they walk, they live lives, not as enemies of Jesus, enemies of the cross of Christ, the instrument of self-denial. That's what they don't get. This self-denial that is required for us to not end in destruction. Self-mastery is possible. We live in a culture that tells us you cannot resist your desires. Find your deepest desire, say yes to it, and you will become a whole person. And it's not working. That pathway is overwhelming our society in anxiety. That is not a pathway to wholeness. And we have all the statistics to prove it to us that it's not working. But in Jesus we find that we can deny ourselves. And over against that self-indulgence kind of way that leads to destruction, mastered by your own desire, not even wanting to escape that prison, thinking that it's okay. Instead of that, notice what Paul says he does that makes him worthy of imitation. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see, instead of being people who are mastered by our desires through licentious living, we need to be people who are self-controlled through our citizenship in heaven. We can have discipline over our appetites and desires. And when we do this, we are anticipating the time when we will be given authority, not only over our own bodies, but over God's new creation. This was the point of Psalm 8. It climaxes in humans following the true human Jesus, being given authority over this creation. Now, I need to stop here because verse 20 is one of the most frequently misunderstood verses in all of the New Testament, especially here in the United States. Here in America, Christianity has, for a while now, been summarized in terms of accept Jesus Christ into your heart and go to heaven when you die. But that is a grossly 
inadequate summary of the Christian faith. And if that is your framework for the Christian faith, if that's your starting point when you read verses 19 and 20, then you're likely to hear Paul saying something like, this world is not your home. Someday Jesus will rescue you from it and take you home to heaven where there's no pain, no mourning, no sin, no death. So stop loving this world and keep loving Jesus and be patient as you wait for him to come and take you home. It's a very popular message, but it's wrong. It's escapist. It's Gnostic. It fosters irresponsible stewardship of time and resources and and the earth itself. And it's not at all what Paul had in mind here. To understand Paul rightly here, we have to go back to the original context for his readers, the people in the church at Philippi, their city, Philippi, was one of the most important and strategic Roman colonies in the whole world in that day. It was on the northern coast of the Aegean Sea, 600 miles from Rome. About 100 years before this, Philippi was the setting for the last great, one of the great battles in the Roman Civil War that broke out after Brutus killed Julius Caesar. Philippi was the site of the decisive battle to end the Roman Civil War. And when the battle was won, the victorious generals, Mark Antony and Octavian, they won the battle in Philippi. They go back to Rome. Octavian is crowned Caesar Augustus. But Mark Antony and Octavian had a a problem. They had been fighting a long time. And had very big armies, and very big armies, very accustomed to fighting, are a problem if you take them back into an overcrowded situation in Rome, and you want to stay in power. So what did they do? They left thousands of their soldiers in Philippi to live there. And they commissioned Philippi as a Roman colony. And they gave these soldiers all the resources they needed to make a permanent home in Philippi. They did not want them coming to Rome. So Philippi, 100 years before Paul is writing this letter, had been this small Greek-speaking town. But then suddenly it was transformed into a Latin-speaking city governed by officers appointed by Caesar Augustus himself. And the city of Philippi became an eastern copy of Rome. And they developed the same customs, the same laws, the same games, the same economic systems, and the same religion. So when Paul writes in verse 20 that the Philippian Christians, their citizenship is in heaven... He's writing to Philippians. They know what it means to have citizenship somewhere else. And they know it does not mean you're going back there. It never meant that to them. He's not saying to the Philippians, they never would have thought, hang in there until Caesar comes and gets you and takes you to Rome. No. They didn't think our citizenship is in heaven. They never thought that meant hang in there in Philippi until Jesus returns and raptures you and takes you back to heaven. No. 
That is the opposite of what he's saying to them. When he says to Philippians that your citizenship is in heaven, he's riffing off of the proud citizenship in Rome. And what he's saying to them is, Philippian Christians, you have been left behind. The left behind ones are the good ones. (laughs) That's right, it's funny. You got the irony of what I'm saying. He's saying to them, you are an outpost of heaven. And you are right where the real king wants you to be. You are not waiting at a bus stop for a ride home. You are being established as a colony of heaven on earth. Now, before I go any further, one other, look, if the right-wing people need to get that bit straight, let me talk to the left-wingers for just a minute. Colonialism is not a happy term anymore. Right? It's got all kinds of baggage, right? It's loaded. And, and, and it's rightly that we should feel negative about this word, given how often colonialism has resulted in the abuse and enslavement and destruction of indigenous people's extraction economies that destroy not only the local economy, but the local environment. And this is not just a modern era European approach to colonialism. This is what ancient empires did too. They did it even worse perhaps. The brutality of the Roman Empire's colonial expansion into places like Palestine is well documented. So let's be clear from the outset. When the Bible is telling us to colonize and when the Bible is telling us we are a colony and when the Bible is advocating colonialism, it is not talking about what Israel is doing in Palestine, what what England did in India, what English people did to the native. It is not talking about that. You have to let the Bible define its terms. Our call to be a colony, to be a colony of God's kingdom runs in the opposite direction of the way the empires of this world have used colonies. Our calling is not to conquer. It is not to enslave indigenous peoples. It is not to retake Harrisonburg. Our calling is in love to offer King Jesus in non-coercive ways. Our calling is to become people who set people free from physical, literal slavery and all kinds of other slavery. Our calling is to end all of these slaveries. Instead of plundering the earth for treasure to take back to Rome, to take back to heaven, to King Jesus, our calling is to bring heaven to earth, to make the riches of God's kingdom available to people on earth. Now, and another thing that makes this version of colonization very different from what we've seen in world history is the ethnic makeup of the kingdom of God. Instead of one tribe or one race subjugating another, colonies of God's kingdom welcome all people and regard them as equals. No matter their tribe or tongue, they are given equal status 
under the king of kings and lord of lords, both Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, male and female. We are to be colonies of heaven, forging a new kind of identity, compromising a rainbow people, united by worship and ethics and beliefs, not united by skin color, not united by any other ethnic identifier. So this is a third quality we need to find in someone who we are imitating. It's a person who's behaving in a way that they have connected their job, their labors up to God's kingdom. And they are laboring for advanced signs of God's kingdom brought to birth on earth as in heaven. Someone who is waiting for Jesus not to take them away from this world but waiting for Jesus, this world's true Lord, to complete the biblical promise that Israel's God will judge the whole earth in order to fill it with his glory as the waters cover the sea and to raise his people from the dead. Do you have this role model in your life? Do you have a role model of someone who knows how to connect the ultimate salvation with their daily work? Not to take them away from the world, but someone who knows earth is not made for heaven. Heaven is made for earth. That Jesus will change our shabby old bodies to be like his glorious body. That God has given us his spirit and citizenship in his heaven so that we will be agents of heaven, representatives of King Jesus, his glorious rule right here, right now on this earth. We are to be agents of the heavenly citizens of the heavenly kingdom on earth. People who know what it means to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is coming back to join heaven to earth in a great act of transformation. He is already reigning and he will complete the work that he has launched When Paul is straining forward, he's straining forward toward the new heavens and new earth. And he's dragging justice with him. And he's driving neighborhoods with him. And peace work with him. And education with him. And he's bringing every square inch of this earth under the lordship of Christ. For incarnation to be a missionary church. We have to resist the cynicism that doesn't have role models. And we have to resist the busyness that doesn't put you around role models. And we have to follow the example of people who have learned to think and to live this way when it comes to their identity and maturity and their behavior. We need to find the repetites. Let's pray.